Welcome to Studio Visits with SilverEye, where I get to talk in depth with some of the most interesting contemporary photographers working today about their latest projects. I'm David Oresik, the Executive Director of SilverEye Center for Photography. SilverEye works to promote the power of contemporary photography as a fine art medium by creating original exhibitions, unique educational programming like this series, and through the lab at SilverEye, a space for artists in our community to learn, create, and connect. This week, I spoke with Zora J. Murph about his newest book, At No Point in Between, published by Deus Books in 2019. Murph is an assistant professor of art at the University of Arkansas. He received his MFA in studio art from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, where he began to work on the series that became At No Point in Between. Murph uses photography as a way to explore the histories of American systems and the role imagery plays in shaping our beliefs and perceptions. I've watched these pictures develop from afar for a few years, and I've been so impressed with his work, so I was really excited to get in the weeds with Zora about his influences, his inspirations, and what he looks for in a good photo book edit. I was also really moved by how he was able to open up about his process, and especially to hear him speak about the existential crisis he was feeling that led him to begin this work. A few copies of At No Point In Between are still available for purchase at deusbooks.net, and I really hope you'll check it out because I think this conversation will be a lot more resonant if you can spend some time with the publication. And now my conversation with Zora J. Murph. I'm really excited to talk to you today. We've we've um, had you in the gallery with a conversation uh, about a year or two ago with uh, Terrence Washington, um, where you two discussed this work in a much earlier stage but I'm really excited to, to talk to you about this book now that it's come out. Um, it was published by Deus, Deus Books last year. And I think it's one of the most beautiful, richest, most complicated photo books that I've seen in a, in a long time. And it's got a lot of layers that I can't wait to, um, I can't wait to dig into them with you. Um, I have so many questions, but I think to start off, I wanna ask you, how did you get started on, this book called At No Point In Between. Oh man, um, well, first of all, thanks David for such a generous, uh, <laughs> generous introduction to the work. And it's good to, it's good to be um, uh, in conversation with you and you know, kind of working with, uh, the project started uh, when I was a graduate student at the University of Nebraska. Um, yeah, I started it, you know, started shooting um, like making pictures in North Omaha as a graduate student, um, you know, doing a lot of research about the history of that place. I think it was like a matter of just really reflecting deeply on, um, you know, sort of like my my own being, um, you know, at that time, um, you know, at the time in my life. Um, and making these really sort of crucial connections between, uh, you know, maybe experiences that I was having, uh, you know, like these kind of existential questions I was asking myself and then, um, you know, like learning about this one neighborhood and, you know, like all of this sort of violence and oppression, um, you know, that kind of formed it into the place that it was, you know, this, this beautiful rich place, uh, you know, where all of, um, well, if I can back you up a second, I mean, yeah. what what were those questions you were asking about yourself in relation to this place? 
Um, so it was, you know, like a, this moment in history, like where we were, uh, you know, like cameras were capturing, um, you know, black individuals being uh, killed by police officers, you know. Like I decided to watch the footage of the murder of Laquan McDonald when, um, when it was released. And that was the first time that I had like decided I was going to, to like watch it all the way through. I became like, I, after doing that, I became rather obsessed with, um, you know, the trial, um, you know, of, of uh, the officer Jason Van Dyke. Um, but I, I think I became so obsessive because I, I got so wrapped up in like wanting to understand, you know, like, you know, like what does justice sort of look like in this situation? Um, and then like, how does that relate to my own being, you know? Um, you know, this, this kid was perceived as dangerous, you know, because of his physical appearance. And I, I think it was like just this moment, like, where you, where I couldn't escape it. Like I had to ask myself, you know, like, kind mm -hmm. of, you know, how do I, how do I move through this world? You know, how do people see me? Mm -hmm. um, you know, like, like, you know, how are my behaviors read? Um, uh, and then just kind of thinking about the necessity of the question itself. Right. And, um, that, that was like, I guess where I was at, like, you know, like asking myself these questions and then at the same time, um, you know, deciding to go back to school to study art. Yeah. I mean, I think that that trauma and that pain is, is present in the work that, that your mind is, is, is in that place and it comes through in a couple different ways. But, but I think before we get into that, I wanted to ask you, um, tell me about North Omaha. Um, what do people who are looking at this book need to understand about that place? Um, I mean, I, I think that to me, um, I'm not really, I don't know like if I would say I'm asking people to recognize any aspect about it in particular, other than that it is, that it's a real place. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that it has this history of redlining um, and how like, you know, like, I guess like that sort of rea the reality of, of the neighborhood, you know, it's, it's past, you know, and how that past kind of relates to the present, um, that the story of it is, is ubiquitous, you know, across neighborhoods. Um, you know, throughout the United States, mm -hmm. you know, to me, it's like, I think we have to grapple with the fact that these spaces exist everywhere. I think that's a really interesting um, answer to the question, because when I'm looking at this project, I see, in some ways, a really specific place and a, a moment in time and people who are clearly individuals living in this neighborhood who are specific people. And I also see maybe a more symbolic layer, but a lot of these photographs seem to represent things beyond the project. Thinking a little bit of photographs like the uh, the cut down tree. Am I right? There's kind of a balance between a specificity and a more general symbolism happening in a lot of these photographs? Uh, definitely. And I think that was like, that was the making, right? Like that, like when I started going and like and photographing in North Omaha and I was learning about redlining and 
you know, like learning about it as this invisible process or this process that was designed to be invisible. Mm-hmm. And so you have these like kind of markers or signifiers, you know, in the landscape, um, you know, structures that exist, you know, like the, there's these things, like these sort of kind of visual cues, right? And so it's like, it was a process of kind of teasing out those aspects, but then doing it in a way that did that like, to me, I guess, was like uh, trying to transcend sort of categorization. You know, when you, you've mentioned um, the process of understanding redlining became important in forming this work. Um, one, could you maybe define exactly what redlining is? Because I'm, you know, I, I think that was a, a word I had definitely heard before in reference to certain communities and usually lower income communities or communities of color. Um, but I didn't really understand what it meant. Um, and two, how do you photograph that? Sure. Um, yeah, it was, uh, so, you know, like redlining, it's, um, it's the denial of, of services um, or sort of like the restricting of services. Um, and it's done through, like, I guess, just predatory practices, like in lending the federal government um in the 30s sent um or had like contracted assessors to you know map metropolitan areas um, and then figure out what the value of land was and so they uh, the government created these underwriting manuals to help those assessors kind of determine how to how to make the maps and then how to mark off sections of land and then um and within that there became like this sort of rating um, this value this value system um, and uh, that was categorized by like a like alphabetically a b c d and so a of course being prime you know d being substandard Um, and so like one way that they would determine value of land was by um, racial the makeup of like um, like racial occupancy Um, and so if an area was majority black it was given a lesser value and so what that means is is that um, lending organizations, banks, um, if someone's coming in and saying, I want to secure a business loan and I want to put it in this D-rated neighborhood, the bank's going to be like, well, maybe we don't want to lend money to you because, you know, this area is kind of poor, you know, the value's down, um, you know, we don't, we don't want to, like, it's a risk for us to give you money here. It forces investment in other areas that are deemed more value. Inherently, those are areas of occupied by white individuals right and, and it gives the lender a kind of cover right mm-hmm. because they exactly. can say we're not being racist this is just the manual the federal mm-hmm. government gave us it's not exactly. our it's not our decision or it's not our fault. right exactly exactly and so um you know like um that creates like it doesn't initially create the system right it just creates the the perfect setup for the system to to then start running, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's just a way to to you know to fuel up the machine in a sense. You know, people lose their jobs; they can't invest in their communities anymore. You know, businesses leave because they don't have patronage. Um, you know, like all of that stuff happens. The you know the economic state of the community essentially crumbles, um, and then you know, in come the things: poverty, you know, drug use, crime, um, all of those things that then. Um, you know, like rather than looking at the system, how the system was set up to create these failures, blaming the individuals 
who were victims of that system and like saying that it's their problem, like they created it. And then like, yeah, like it was designed to be invisible. Um, its effects aren't immediate. They take place over, over huge periods of time. And so then all I can do in that moment as a photographer is like, look at the state of things as they are now, and then try to tease out like sort of this um, information that is, that seems to be invisible until it's mm -hmm. activated um, sort of in my sort of practice, how I, how I look at it. Is there maybe a photograph that you can, you can point to that kind of illustrates that making the invisible visible? The image of the freeway. I mean, that's like maybe a good place to start. Um, that was like a, like sort of a moment, like a groundbreaking moment for me in the work was um, thinking about the freeway system and then how that system was used and then how that, like how it works in the history of redlining and, and it's sort of commonality. Um, so the freeway um, that runs through North Omaha, um, it was originally supposed to be built through a majority white neighborhood, um, mm -hmm. but then those in like those individuals, you know, use their political capital to have it built, be built through the black neighborhood. And so, um, you know, it, of course, you know, was like, I think it destroyed, I think it was like maybe three, four, like city blocks wide. Um, but it destroyed, you know, tons of homes, displaced a bunch of people. Um, and so you have like this kind of fracturing of a community in that sense. Um, but then what it also does is diverts traffic from the main business corridor of North Omaha, which was like how you traveled North and South. Um, and so, you know, like once that traffic is diverted, then people stop patronizing, you know, like they stop going to the businesses there. I was just going to say, I think in this photograph in particular was one that mm -hmm. I've been, been thinking about because it shows the freeway, not just as something that's doing all the things you're describing. It's, it's just mm -hmm. a wall. It's a dead end at the end of this mm -hmm. uh, corridor through these apartments. Definitely. Well, and it's like, you know, just the, the ways of like speaking to boundary visually, I think was like something I was considering with this image. When I took this one, like that specific photograph, like I, I was like, okay, this is how, this is how you get there. Like, this is how, like, this is the image that yes, it shows like the thing itself, but then alludes to the larger idea, mm -hmm. like sort of like, like showing like what it's, how it was like specifically designed to operate. I think, so there's a photograph called Quartz towards the beginning mm -hmm. of the book um, mm -hmm. that has been one that I've been looking at a lot. And it's this kind of gorgeous, enormous, like tree that just fills the frame with that chain link fence and the basketball court and the kind of telephone wires running through the frame. Um, and I began to see this as almost like this tree, you know, must be at least a hundred years old and must have kind of been a part of all this history and this kind of overgrown scene and, and the way, um, I saw this as a as a kind of a metaphor for the way that that history you know is is present in the project and there are these these elements that have seen these changes over time um is that a is that an accurate reading at all or, or tell me about you know this photograph I remember making this photograph um but I was like it the the space like it had almost like this I don't know like sacred or like spiritual feel Mm. Um, and then, yeah, like that massive tree, like actually some of the branches had started to like grow, like over the fence and like into the court. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, it was just like, I was kind of like marveling at like, you know, kind of just the scene itself. Um, and then, yeah, like considering like the larger like history and like just time and like how the space, like how time, maybe how time fills the space is a good way of, of putting it. I wanted to ask you about your portraits. And I think to me, the kind of beating heart of this book is the kind of portraits sequence throughout. And um, just what is your, you know, how did you go about making these? And, and what is your kind of, um, what role do you see the portraits playing in the book? Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, to me, the portraits kind of stand, like they're, to me, they're this idea of, I guess, love. And it's something that, um, my friend Lisa, who um, write, who wrote the afterword um, for the book, it's like a, it's something that she responds to, um, and she says, you know, I, I think it's um, what I what I want to like say what I see is beauty, but what I think I mean by beauty is is love, mm-hmm. um, and you know, I was when she wrote that, like I it took like, it was one of those things that I, I read and I was like, oh yeah, that's really nice. And then like, actually I was like, oh wait, actually I think this is more important <laughs> of a moment that I'm giving it, right? And, and thinking about, yeah, like, you know, what was I kind of thinking about when I photograph people? Um, and it relates back to, you know, watching that, um, you know, Laquan McDonald being murdered. You know, like I, um, you know, I talk about the work, I, I talk about that moment a lot and that it was a fearful moment. And then thinking about fear, um, you know, not only thinking about harm, but also thinking about, you know, the ways in which I learned fear and learning fear from my mom. Mm-hmm. And that she wanted to teach me that fear because it was, it's a necessity for me um, as a Black individual, but that she's teaching me that because she loves me. And, you know, so I'm learning about myself. I'm learning. And as I gain that deeper understanding, I begin to love myself even more despite like what the world is telling me, you know, the value of my existence is uh, in this country Um, or like the moment for me is what's important, you know, like this moment where um, I see this stranger, the stranger sees me and we like, you know, throughout, like through our, our brief interaction, we get a deep sense of, I don't know, like of, of who, of like, who we are and like how and the ways in which we're connected and and this idea of like I guess it being acknowledged. I think the portraits and I think the reason the portraits stand out as being so so much the driving kind of force behind this book for me is if there is a moment of hope it's in the portraits if there is a moment of love it's in the portraits if there is a kind of unadulterated kind of pure beauty and reverence I think these portraits are about as close to that as I've ever seen. I mean, the connection feels so palpable to me between the photographer and, and your sitters. Um, I was I was thinking about when I was uh, studying with Dawood Bey, and if I can try to summarize Dawood's theory of portraiture, he would often talk about the importance of portraying ordinary people with dignity and love and respect in a picture especially people who hadn't been seen that way, you know, in art history, in the media, in a popular context, and that that making a picture with a genuine kind of reverence for your subject 
was a was a radical and important gesture to me it was like it it seems like such that idea you know and i, I guess like how you're putting it you know like it, it seems like such a, a simple gesture right and i think that was like something like i you know i had this like kind of moment where it was like oh like that's like like that's that in itself is enough right like that act in itself is enough um mm -hmm. maybe to transition to the other element this book brings uh to bear is is a variety of found images um which are some of the most kind of haunting and and i think traumatizing uh parts of the book which you've you've incorporated a lot of found images from kind of famous and infamous moments of police violence against uh, young black men, basically. Um, but you show the you show these images in a, a very specific way, um, where they are the images in themselves do not show the violence. They're oftentimes the moments before. And there's also at least one sort of historical lynching uh, photograph as well that also kind of crops out and omits the violence. Tell me about the the process of bringing in this kind of found imagery and archival imagery into the book and, and why you wanted it to contrast with the kind of contemporary scene of a neighborhood that you've made. Yeah, well, I think it was, it kind of goes back to like, you know, kind of conceptualizing the work through the landscape of North Omaha itself, you know? Mm -hmm. um like thinking about like again like how do you make visible something that is designed to be invisible so thinking about this profound experience that i'm having um you know kind of questioning my own existence being prompted by a video or a sequence of still images thinking about like th you know thinking about myself as an image maker um and then also just like this act of collecting so i collect images like vernacular like photography of black individuals and it's like this thing I, I just like it's this process of like reclaiming for me and so like i'm thinking about photography in all of these different ways and then and so the archived images like they exist as like this form of evidence like that these things did happen but then uh, like to me again it's like about kind of getting into like the subtle things of the images so the lynching photograph for instance the the real image like the real image of it is pretty tragic it shows you know will brown's body in, in the front of the frame you know it's pretty graphic a pretty graphic image and so what i noticed was when i first encountered that image i was so caught up in the moment of violence itself like that's where my eyes were kind of glued and i was thinking about the victim and of course yes i do need to acknowledge you know his existence and um you know his story and you know the like really tragic way that his life ended but i can't just stop looking there you know one of the one of the most important aspects of this photograph to me is this crowd of white men who could put themselves so solidly um, you know to create a piece of tangible evidence to say i was here and i was complicit in this act and i can do this you know in this country with impunity to me that's the more important part of the photograph and um, that's the part that like we really need to look at critically and kind of rectify with and like how does that relate to images that we see today just this act of kind of cropping into that image and forcing the viewer's gaze to that moment kind of where i began to do like this sort of um like it's almost like um like sampling in music i would say like mm -hmm. it's like this kind of you know taking you know like borrowing like from historic record and then kind of remixing it um and kind of showing it like finding a, a new use for it or like 
you know, a use for it that's already existed, but then like kind of, you know, putting this spin on it. Um, what about um, sort of some of the other found images from more contemporary sources? Um, so there's um, an image of a group of police officers being sworn in, but -hmm. thinking about like this idea of um, policing, um, you know, like police violence, but then the act of policing in general, you know, like, um, you know, how the neighborhood I was in was policed versus, you know, like, you know, majority white neighborhoods, you know, there's like a marked difference there. And this image was on the front page of the paper um, one day. And I was just like, well, I was like blown away by finding it. You know, just this sort of like this act of this group of, of officers like raising their hand and thinking about this moment and like what they're signing up for. And then thinking about like this idea of numbers. And, you know, to me, like I'm, I'm looking at this image and asking and asking like, you know, which one of you might murder somebody who looks like me? Mm. Um, you know, like, I, that's like a real question that I have about this photograph. And then so I, you know, took it and put it in the context of the work. And so in the book, you see, you encounter that image, um, or you encounter the, um, like the, this building facade, you know, then, uh, this traffic sign with the, the don't walk sign. So you have like this hand and then you get to the next page and it's this image of these officers being sworn in all kind of echoing that like don't walk you know the hand and so you make that crucial connection and then the next page is a portrait of this um, individual I photographed named Julissa and then I think the next page is um, a piece of text that says Vivian was and so that it was like this kind of connection to this this story that exists in North Omaha the story that happened in North Omaha of um, this young girl Vivian Strong who was 14 and she was um, uh, she was uh, shot in the back of the head by a police officer that she was running away from, and he um, was acquitted of the crime. Um, and then, so you know, you get to that tech, you get to Jaleesa's portrait, which is kind of this echoing of um, this found image of Vivian Strong that appears elsewhere in the book. You get to the text Vivian was this idea of like text, and then you know, kind of placed at the bottom of the page, um, and so implying that an image should be there, but the image is gone. And then you get to the following page and it's a, a still um, from the moment right before Laquan McDonald um, encounters um, officer Jason Van Dyke. And then how that story from the present day connects back to this police murder um, from 1969. And so I can connect you know, those two moments in time. I can connect it to the landscape of North Omaha and the process of redlining. And so like this sort of like, I guess like intersectional kind of thinking in the book, the sort of intersectional logic existing again through this context of, um, of, of sequence of how things unfold, unfold in like this linear sort of fashion. Like that's, that's how I'm kind of using everything to kind of, to have like each type of image question the other types. And um, hopefully the viewer can begin to kind of make those connections as well. That story and I think that sequence is so powerful. And I think the thing that stands out to me about it is that there's a kind of, um, you know, it's it's almost kind of unstuck in time and in the way that, that this place, all these events are kind of swirling and past and present are 
um, are mixed up and especially starting off with the, with the lynching photograph, you know, which is a hundred years ago. I, and I think the, the relationship to time is, is one that, again, I think we've been talking about in a couple of different ways. Um, one phrase that's used in Lisa Phil's essay is this idea of a violence being slow. Um, was that an idea that came from you or, or how did that kind of come to figure into the project, this, this notion of slow violence? Yeah, um, actually it's, a, it's an idea that exists. Um, and so it, um, uh, the term was coined by a sociologist uh, named Rob Nixon. Um, it comes from um, a book that he did, Slow Violence, Gender, and the environmentalism of the poor. Um, but you know, he's talking about like this idea of like what qualifies as violence and basically like violence exists in these multiple ways and that we need to begin like thinking about um, like environmental issues, um, you know, things like redlining. We need to be thinking about those as, as forms of violence. And so he is just positing like this sort of difference between like the ways in which we perceive it. So we perceive it either as fast violence, so that's like the violence we know, where, you know, risk and, and, and harm is present, um, and then you have slow violence, so this type of violence that isn't seen. And the reason that we don't see it is because there are vast gaps between cause and effect. So if you think about, you know, like the economic state of North Omaha at the time that I was photographing it, you know, those effects, like the, the causes, the root causes started in the 1930s, and I was photographing in the neighborhood, um, you know, in, um, uh, you know, like starting in, I think, yeah, like 2015, 2016, around there. Um, and so like, yeah, like I was seeing the effects, but I could only speak to the cause and like this sort of theoretic sense or like finding like doing like this academic research, right? And I guess even like, I guess you could have like, you started to like see a lot of these things manifest, I think, probably around the time like the freeways are getting built. I wanted to ask you about um about the lisa seville essay at the end of the book uh, and it's a really beautiful essay and i love i love this idea about you know where you prompted her you said right around the work um not about the work and in a way i think that mirrors what the work does right because you don't you're not one to come out and say exactly what you're thinking in your in your projects right there's poetry and metaphor and and they are you know you're you're coming around a lot of ideas about the depictions of people and places and systems and um they kind of add up to more than the sum of their parts i think uh, mm -hmm. through your editing um i just want to read that passage um that mm -hmm. gets to an idea uh that i found to almost sum up the project in a really interesting way for me, or, or at least to sum up a big part of it. Um, she writes, don't write about the work, you tell me, write around it. In another beginning, there was another boy. He was born in bondage and died a free man. At some point in between, he saw the light and chemistry not only captured an image, but conjured a world. He turned himself into the most photographed man in what were not yet and may never be these United States. Frederick Douglass believed that a certain kind of picture could twist the story that is this country had whispered itself to sleep with. So he dressed up and pressed up against the hypocrisy and he said, behold. Even as he sat to have his picture made, he saw that it would be subject to what he called 
the wild scramble between contending interests and forces. It will either lift us to the highest heavens or sink us to the bottomless depths, he wrote, understanding perhaps before anyone else did that this country would war over the photograph much as it battled over itself. I think that passage about Frederick Douglass really beautifully sums up so much of what you're saying in this project, that the battle over the meaning of images is going to rage on. It's not going to be settled anytime soon. Do you believe that, uh, that photographing someone with humanity, you know, and, and, and featuring their humanity in a photograph can, can change, can be some part of changing our situation? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that, like, I always have a difficult time sort of, like, saying, like, what my photographs can do. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I, you know, it's like, I, I say that I believe in the work's potential. Mm -hmm. and I think maybe potential to ask questions. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think, you know, like, kind of going back to, like the Douglas image or, you know, kind of referencing his use of photography, you know, to me, he's raising questions about appearance, mm -hmm. you know, so if I mark myself with these trappings of like what a quote unquote man is, you know, like man, as far as like being a free individual, like, you know, I, I think that's like kind of a question that he's, the, the simple question that he's raising, you know, and it's just through appearance, right? But it, it, like that small act raises a lot of interesting questions. And like, can you convince people to consider the ways in which they think about the world? And can those viewpoints change? Or, you know, like can that, can seeing, or, you know, like can hearing what Douglas is trying to say through making photographs of himself? Um, yeah, can that kind of like, like does that, does that engender, you know, like, some sort of like personal like some change on like a personal level yeah I don't know I guess like I I like I understand like that history and I understand like like photography's use in that way and it's all things that I consider but for me like I'm I'm I try to make I, I suppose like I guess I, I just try to be genuine in in the images that I make of, of other people and you know I think that's like sort of finding that level of respect and you know like yeah like um yeah like creating the image where they're where that individual has dignity yeah I think that's just my that's sort of my aim going into that interaction and so I remain hopeful that like that I'll that I'll that I'll always be able to do that and then also remaining hopeful that, uh, like, you know, that my my work can continue to just ask people questions and get people to think critically. Yeah. Well, I think that's a really beautiful note to end on. I think it sums up the, the project really well. Um, Zora J. Murph, thank you so much for, for sharing your work with us. Uh, thank you. It was, a, it was a really great pleasure speaking with you again, David.